Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kate Wilson. And I'm Anna Shaw. Anna, tell us about your interview this week. So today I spoke with Shutapa Banerjee, who is a Harvard fellow and a behavioral insights advisor and a board director. And we had this amazing conversation about financial inclusion and well-being. And Shutapa is based in India. So you can imagine that the context of you know, financial inclusion in an area like that compared to right, you know, Australia is quite different. I found that to be quite um, quite eye-opening learning about her experience and what she's seeing in, you know, in where she lives um, and what the organisations are doing and, you know, what she's seeing to do with policy and uh, different initiatives as well. And we also spoke about uh, the role of financial inclusion and wellbeing for women particularly, and she's got quite an extensive background in behavioural insights um, and looking at behavioural biases, and she's really qualified in this space as well. And we spoke a lot about the role of a gender lens in making a difference within organisations, including financial services as well. And I think that was something that's quite new to me, and I find behavioural insights quite a fascinating topic. And I know, Kate, you're quite interested in it as well. And I think there was some of the examples that she, she was giving in in, um, in our interview, I found just so interesting and just things I hadn't heard before about things like nudges in banking apps that encourage good savings behaviours or uh, just little things that help customers make positive financial decisions where they wouldn't necessarily know to do that or they wouldn't necessarily think that that would be something that helps them. And it might be something like encouraging them to save a little bit more or it could be just a notification that, you know, encourages them to deposit a little bit of money or check their balance um, and I think there's a, there's a lot that we get into and I think there's, I could have spoken to her for, you know, hours and hours, but um, I think particularly the work around uh, inclusive financial services and the role of the gender lens was particularly interesting. And I think it's something that you're going to find particularly interesting as well. Yeah, I think I mean, we spoke the other week about just the importance of financial inclusion and how um, digital inclusion and smartphones are really accelerating financial inclusion in, in, um, in Asia in particular. Um, the gender lens is is a new element to that, I guess, that we haven't spoken about on the podcast so far. Um, I imagine that in those in those countries where financial inclusion is an issue, um, it's even bigger for women who have, even in more developed countries, have traditionally struggled with things like financial inclusion. Um, what did she did she have anything to say around how we can improve financial inclusion for women specifically? Well, there's a lot that we discussed, but I think it'll be good to just, I think, go into the episode and really let her speak for herself on this one. Um, I think there was a lot of really good examples that she was giving, and I think the role of women in, you know, making decisions and being empowered to, you know, make financial decisions and be across that process is really important. I think there's, I'm hoping that the listeners are really going to enjoy this one. Yeah, I think it's a, a interesting point that we think of, um, you know, financial inclusion maybe has been more something more important for women. But even in um, in Australia, you still see women struggling with access to finance, and um, we see in our own data that women are a lot less confident in making financial decision yeah. make uh, in making financial decisions and managing their finances. Um, even in a country like Australia, where you would you would think or, or hope that maybe they have more access to finance. So, uh, very interested in hearing what she has to say. Yeah, I think it's something that. I mean, I know it interests both of us, but I think the idea of thinking more than just, you know, financial inclusion in different markets about what about the role of women and men in doing that and does literacy and wellbeing play a role? And then also just from the banking side, what can banks do to actually encourage people to make positive savings behaviours or, you know, manage credit products better? And I think it's going to be quite interesting having having this global view as well where, you know, we, we speak a lot about Australia and we, you know, we know what it's like to be 
a woman in Australia having financial products, but to take that across the globe and actually think about what's this like um, in India and what, what's the research showing over there. I think there's, there's a lot that we can learn as well. I'm really looking forward to listening to this interview. Uh, let's get into it now. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the RFI Group Digital Banker Podcast. With me today is Shudapa Banerjee, who is a Harvard Fellow, a Behavioural Insights Advisor and Board Director. And we're going to be speaking about a topic I'd say we're both quite passionate about, financial inclusion, and particularly a view of this for women. And we're also going to look at behavioural insights and looking at this across a few different industries as well. So to start with, Shudapa, would you mind telling us about yourself and the work you've done both in India and globally? Thank you, Anna. I'm happy to be here. Um, yes, I am going to talk a little bit about my experience because I'm going to weave into that experience in many ways as we sort of talk through this uh, podcast. Um, so for the first 24 years of my professional career, I've been a banker uh, across two multinational banks and the last four years in a boutique investment bank, building several businesses in the bank. A large part of it actually relates to what we're going to talk about, which is money management and financial well-being. Um, so I set up these businesses from scratch and ran it. Um, in 2003, end of 2013 is when I moved out of, literally exited the corporate treadmill as it were, uh, to get into academia. I was selected for a fellowship at Harvard and I spent a year there. Uh, when I came back, and you know, this is more a program where you transition from a primary leadership career to doing what could be more complex and uh, societally useful. And, you know, one of the subjects that I kind of gotten, got passionate about was uh, the whole area of behavioral insights, which comes from behavioral economics. And that is something we will hopefully cover in the rest of uh, the podcast. Uh, but what interested me, having been a person who ran businesses, was looking at it more from a practitioner's lens. So, you know, if 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 this is a subject which has applications, how does it apply to the world where I come from? And, you know, when I came back and, you know, just before I went off to Harvard, I had gotten into also the nonprofit sector, social enterprises. So the whole application of this to sectors which affect lives was something which was very important to me. So that's what got me also into women and gender and, you know, so today, you know, to answer in a nutshell, you know, I sit on the board of directors of a number of companies on the commercial side. I also consult you and I try to use a lot of what I have learned in these sectors. So that's in a nutshell what I do. And the reason why I'm bringing this up and, you know, it's something that we may be able to cover later on is the fact that I've, you know, got a, a background in the corporate sector mostly in the financial services sector and now also in the nonprofit and social enterprises sector and academia. The fact that, you know, one has got tentacles in pretty much everything uh, actually does something to the way you look at problems, to the way you look at issues. And hopefully we will cover that, Anna, in the course of what we discuss. Absolutely. And I think that holistic experience you've got from corporate, nonprofit, you know, social enterprise, like you mentioned, just that wealth of knowledge that you have is is so invaluable. And I'm really looking forward to asking you a couple of these questions to do with both 
financial inclusion and also some of those broader works in the gender lens and also looking at, you know, women and financial inclusion as well. And I think starting with the topic of financial inclusion, so this is a topic that's, you know, getting more traction in society, I would say, although it's still sort of an emerging topic um, that I'm seeing more organisations start to talk about. But I think when we're thinking about the action that needs to be taken, um, there's still a bit of a grey area where companies and and banks and different organisations are sort of figuring out what they need to do. And I think to start off with, do you feel that there's enough of a focus on financial inclusion in society and within different organisations at the moment? And when thinking about that, do you think, where would you kind of say this, this support or focus is coming from? Let me start before that by saying, you know, why uh, financial inclusion or financial well-being, which is a broader topic, uh, why it's important, uh, why it's important to me and why it's important for women. Uh, And, you know, and and this is some of it is contextual to India, but most of it relates to not just a developing world, but pretty much globally. Right. Uh, So financial well-being essentially is about being empowered to be able to take your calls or to lead your life on your own terms because financial problems is not a worry, right? You're provided for. Uh, And this applies to everybody, right? I mean, all of us who who think that we are kind of financially well off, uh, suddenly if there is a jolt as happened during the pandemic last year or how does it leave you? You know, suddenly, if there is a source of income which disappears, are you still fine? Because, you know, some of these shocks in the kind of shorter market cycle economy that we've transitioned into may happen again and again. Financial inclusion, which is something I know you're passionate about, and so am I, uh, makes the reality even more stark. Right. Uh, Because you're talking about people who are marginalized, people who are left out, who are excluded and where you know, the, 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 the financial ability basically is in any case constrained, right? And if they're excluded, it means they don't economically participate in financial products, financial services, what is available, right? So the ability to make an informed choice, both for the larger category and for the financial excluded, diminish significantly. So if you're talking about independence, while it has many dimensions, financial independence is one of the key areas that allows you to be independent. And hence, and particularly when we now come to women, uh, it becomes one of the things, not the only thing, but certainly a necessary condition for empowerment. And that's, to me, one of the reasons why it's extremely important. Going on to the question that you actually asked, is there enough focus? Now, you know, the country that I live in, India, is a very diverse country, and it's a complex country. So you have the rural areas and you have the urban areas, and there is what we call a last mile, which is penetrating areas which has not been penetrated earlier uh, with a variety of products and services and financial services is one of them. Right? Uh, so I would say, you know, in the last decade or you know, probably even more, there has been a focus which has actually increased over a period of time in terms of how do you get this vast set of people into the fold. So, you know, we've had a number of, and and there are essentially, you know, in my opinion, there are really three tools that you can use if you had a toolbox, right? One is legislation. The second is incentives. And the third is the subject I spoke about, which is nudge or behavioral insights, because essentially what you want to do is enlarge the scope and you want to change people's behavior to embrace it. Just reaching out and creating infrastructure may or may not do too much, 
because people who've been excluded or never had something may not even understand how relevant or important it is, right? Uh, so, so if those are the three things, there has been legislation which has actually and incentives for banks to actually reach that last mile, right? And along with government-specific policy towards that and a few others, certainly in the Indian context and whatever I have read about globally and wherever I have been present, I've seen in large countries which have had an unpenetrated base of customers, there has been effort to reach out. And this is where a multi-stakeholder approach is critical because it's just not something that certainly in developing countries, the government alone can do. And I have seen uh, the role here played by businesses and uh, in scaling up anything in a, in a democratic market economy, you know, the scaling up happens when uh, businesses get into this field and actually widen or get into areas which may have been a market failure earlier, right? So it means, you know, certain entities will get in, give the risk capital for the rest of the market and the capital to start paying a premium on that. So today, capital markets are paying a premium on a lot of things which are businesses for the base of the pyramid. And this certainly is one such area. So there is, you know, and I think this will continue for some time to come. There is government, there is civil society and NGOs which are helping in capacity building, and there is banks, financial services organizations. And a number of different organizations have actually come into the fold because, again, coming back to the Indian context, banks are no longer only universal banks. There are payment banks. There are small finance banks. There are banks, there are financial entities which started doing microfinance, uh, which is primarily only financial inclusion, uh, which have now been given licenses to operate as small finance banks. So their cost goes down and they can reach out with a larger array of products. So yes, I think this area certainly is getting a lot of focus, but this focus has to continue and we need to keep using the learnings to be able to go further. Are there any examples in India or kind of globally that you've seen where there's been a really effective model or solution to financial inclusion? You know, you've mentioned microfinance. Is there anything else that you've seen that's been particularly effective, would you say? Yeah. So, you know, let me give you a, a, a couple of things uh, which can actually fast forward this or speed this up, right? Uh, because in developing countries with large populations and even in advanced countries where you have aboriginal populations, there is always a group which is excluded, right? It's the, it's the size of the group which changes depending on where you are geographically or globally. Um, so one of the things uh, which, uh, you know, I've seen and I think has, uh, is certainly in India sort of, you know, uh, being used as a tool uh, quite effectively and needs to you know be used further and i'm i'm seeing it used elsewhere as well is technology and the whole digital mode uh, so one of the things which um, happened between 2014 and 2018 uh, is you know the government incentivizing the opening of bank accounts right now opening bank accounts is just one thing right that bank account if it is not transacted becomes meaningless right but when it gets complemented by the use of uh, an, a mode of identification, right? and, and in India we have what is called an Aadhaar, which is biometric identification, and you know of a 1.3 billion population, over a billion or more actually have what is called a card with a biometric identification. So you have that, 
and you have mobile technology. And mobile is one thing, even though there are large sections of the poorer population, they all have mobile phones. And smartphones are replacing the older generation phones. So if you look at the three together, uh, which is bank accounts being sort of incentivized and by almost legislation being opened for as many as you can. Uh, and I think the number, if I'm sort of uh, recollecting uh, correctly, between just 2014 and 18, I think the number increased from about 53% to about 86%. I may be off by a few percentage points. So it's a dramatic increase. But to me, that's just one thing, right? If the accounts lie dormant, there's nothing that you would have achieved. But with Aadhaar, where you're using that card to enable mobile payments of the kind that the vast majority want to do, remit money, make deposits, make payments. And you do that, and I'm here talking about the financially excluded people who are the relatively marginalized poorer people, it, if they can do it on the phone and not have to go to a bank, you're not wasting a day's labor. You're not wasting, for a lot of daily wage laborers, it's a big problem if access is not there. Now, if you can access it on your phone and do basic transactions that you wanted to do without losing that day's wages, that is a very big deal. And it's a win-win because on the other side, technology allows you to reach unpenetrated areas in a way that is cost-effective. So even for the entities, whether they are grassroots entities and there's a lot of new you know, entities which are coming out, uh, not necessarily banks, right? But financial services organizations headed by people who are very tech savvy, who are seeing this as an opportunity to be able to do the last mile, which then ties in to banks, right, to be able to make transactions possible and to be able to bring the financial excluded in. So I think that's a great uh, a way of actually achieving financial I think it's a really great point about the role of mobile. And I think especially when we compare, you know, the conversations we've been having in Australia about mobile payments, it's all about, you know, convenience and, you know, making it, it faster and easier. But I think in the in the example you're giving, it's it's actually about not wasting time. So it's I can actually do both. I can still work and I can also make a payment or do do a banking task. Um, in terms of financial services, do you feel that financial services have a, a particular role to be playing in increasing the accessibility of financial products and services? So you mentioned that, you know, there's there's these non, non-banks or these other providers that are starting to offer these types of initiatives. Do you think that financial services should be doing something in particular to really help enable financial inclusion? You know, so one of the things is, uh, as I was mentioning to you, uh, and if I talk about a large number of developing countries, but let me use India as an example. Uh, we have what is called the formal sector and the informal sector, right? The, 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 the basic difference between the two is informal sectors are mom and pop shops, right? You don't yet have labor laws. These could be small entities where less than you know five people, six people are working, small, very small entrepreneurs, etc. Now, the the whole idea is. If this is a real, and in India, this would be almost 92%. So those of us who are in the formal sector are probably 93% are just this six, seven, seven and a half, eight percent keeps changing a little bit. That's working in the formal sector, right? Now, if banks, the larger banks only cater to this population, even from their end, there is, you know, even if there's growth in this population and there's growth in 
the earning capacity of these people, it's still a very small, it's still a very small chunk, right? So for any industry, not just banks, you want to expand the size of the pie. And the attractiveness of India, even to global investors and global companies, is that it's a large population and it's still got a, a younger uh, population, which is the demographic uh, dividend, right? That you, you still have your younger people more, which outweigh the number of people who are, who are the older group, which is the problem that you have in developed nations, right? But uh, for this large population, which is still in the informal sector, if you want to bring them in, you need to have products, you need to have services, financial services, as well as others, which they can buy, which is attractive to them. Right now, the larger, more established entities are not always able to change their financial models to necessarily always cater to them because they're used to doing businesses in a certain way. But the newer entities were coming in, both as small finance banks, which started by being small microfinance companies, and a whole lot of others. You know, when I talked about payment banks, uh, these are you know large telecom companies which are converting and making financial services a large part. Uh, we're talking about postal services. I'm sure that's happened across the globe as well, uh, who had huge reach, who had huge distribution and are now distributing also financial products and services. So to me, it's it, to answer your question, it's in two parts. One is what we think of as the traditional financial services company. And there is certainly a role that they play. And they are going to be aided and complemented by a whole set of entities which may or may not have been in financial services earlier, but are looking at it as a very interesting business opportunity uh, where they have strengths which they can put into use to complement the more older financial players or banks which have traditionally been there. So I think the juxtaposition of the two actually make it a very interesting model and actually helps the process of financial inclusion in more ways than one. Absolutely. And I think we've touched on some of these solutions to financial inclusion. And when you started off, you mentioned some of these nudges as well. And I think these more clever tools are something we've been speaking about a little bit in Australia as well. But I think given your work in the behavioral insights space, I think it's a natural segue into this topic to find out a little bit more about your work and even talk us through, if you can, the behavioral bias and the behavioral insights work that you've done and maybe start tying that in with how you think that has a role to play in financial inclusion as well? Yes, absolutely. So, uh, you know, and I'm going to sort of give you examples. As I said, you know, I spent a little while talking about my experience because I'm going to draw bits and pieces from that. I may not have mentioned that I, you know, when I came back from Harvard and I studied and researched this subject, I also ran a course. I actually did a course um, uh, as an elective uh, and a visiting faculty for one of India's premier business schools uh, where uh, we I used behavioral biases and behavioral insights uh, and looked at it from the angle of gender, from the lens of gender. In fact, you know, the, the, the course was titled uh, uh, Gender Lens on Corporate Policies. Uh, so basically the whole, but let me explain behavioral biases and behavioral insights in, 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 in very quickly and then get on to, you know, what that course and some of the examples are and how that finally plays into uh, financial well-being and financial inclusion. So, you know, behavioral biases, when we speak about the word bias, it naturally has a very negative connotation to most people. It means that you're slanted in a particular direction, which is true, but that's the way we are evolutionarily made. 
right? Uh, so when we use the word conformity bias, everybody looks upon it as something that is not nice. But that's what's kept us alive. That's how we negotiate the world, right? If we see, if we don't see a fire, but if we see people running away in a particular direction, you and I would do the same. We would not run in the opposite direction. That's conformity bias. So it helps us in more ways than one, right? Uh, just like it did during the hunter-gatherer time. So I want to establish that it's a very natural part of who we are as human beings. Uh, it works across species, and this will continue to be there. So biases are there, and it helps us most of the time. It's just that in certain circumstances, unfortunately, it predictably and systematically makes us commit errors of judgment. And this is both men and women, right? Uh, and one of those errors of judge, and those errors of judgment primarily happen because we tend to believe what we see in front of us. So one of the primary tenets, and, and you know, if listeners take away this one thing, you know, it, it would still you know give, give me a lot of happiness. Is we tend to believe, even the most unbiased among us, you know, needs to get this as a takeaway. Is there's there's a little acronym in behavioral sciences which is called YCAT. W-Y-S-I-A-T-I. What you see is all there is, right? So uh, let me give you an example. So if all our lives we've seen uh, women as homemakers and men going out to earn, and sometimes the woman follows as a secondary uh, uh, earner, or we see more women as nurses, as primary school teachers, while men tend to be the decision makers, men tend to be the holding the highest positions in finance or CEOs of large companies, naturally, all of us, men and women, tend to believe that that's what's normal. You know, and we sometimes tend to believe that's what's natural, even though normal and natural are two very different things. Natural comes from biology. Normal comes from norm or what is socially prevalent, right? And the more dangerous thing is, what you see is all there is, over a period of time becomes what is, is what should be. In other words, if I'm seeing more men in the highest echelons of finance or in as a CEO, I tend to believe men are there because that's what they're good at. I tend to see men go out and work all the time. It means that's what their natural role is. And we keep confusing normal and natural, right? And we see more women staying home, women looking after children. We tend to believe that we are meant to be nurturers, and that's what we are. There is no biological truth to that at all, right? So that's the first thing that needs to get busted. I mean, and I'll quote very recently, most people, uh, uh, you know, the mainline, mainstream media do, doesn't highlight this at all. Uh, Science Daily recently quoted a very large study uh, done by the, uh, the, the, the Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science, which, you know, analyzed men and women's brains, right? This is something, whenever there is anything to do with differences, mainstream media plays that up. You know, it's that men from women, men from uh, Mars and women from Venus kind of syndrome. Uh, and after coalescing decades of research, they came to a conclusion. And the conclusion is the difference is hardly there at all. That's what how it got summed up, hardly at all, right? Uh, but it has led to many problems. Uh, and that's, you know, what bias can sometimes do. It creates archetypes, it creates stereotypes, which is a natural part of our cognitive makeup, of the way our brain operates. But this is where it leads us astray. 
And this is where the stereotyping prevents a lot of, and you know, one of the examples that you'd be familiar with is this whole business of uh, a study which got published in 2008, which actually looked at gender equality in countries and math scores of girls. And it showed a very interesting correlation. And the correlation was the more gender equal a country, the better are the math scores. Uh, going on to some of the Scandinavian countries where it was uh, negligible to Iceland, probably the most gender equal country in the world, and we're talking 2008 study, uh, where girls actually did better than boys in math, right? Uh, so what that shows is something very interesting since we're talking about behavioral biases is that the role of environment and biology interplay in very nuanced, complex ways. And environment plays a huge role. So if the environment is one and the cultural norm is one where you know girls are thought of as not being good in something, both girls and boys will have that bias. Boys will do better, girls will do better. So we know, you know that it leads to something which is not obviously desirable. Uh, and this has its play, as I mentioned to you, in the world of finance, in the world of big business, uh, it, it has its play everywhere. So th the question then comes, and which is the interesting question, is what can you do about it, right? Uh, so knowing that biases will always be there, right? Is there a way that you can change behavior? And this is very counterintuitive. Can you change behavior before you change mindsets? Right. Uh, and there are many examples. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples because the best way to look at it is actually through examples. So I'm going to quote you uh, one example. I wrote an article last year where I quoted it actively on how can you change a social norm? Right. If norm is what comes in the way and cultural norms is so critical, how can you change? Uh, how can you change this? One, one very good example uh, about this, about changing a social norm or changing a cultural norm is uh, at the local uh, self-governance, uh, politically, at the village level, uh, we have a quota system, uh, which is uh, the Panchayati Raj system, and where uh, women had to necessarily, you know, come on board or get elected as part of the quota, right? Uh, now, in, in villages in West Bengal, which is one of the states in the eastern part of India, uh, when village elders, including the inhabitants of that village, they in any case had to elect women, right? So when they were exposed to women chiefs, and these we're talking about a very patriarchal setup um, uh, in, in, in specifically these villages uh, who did not want to vote for women when they were forced to, and they saw women chiefs twice in a row, uh, what that made them do is very simple. It actually made them invest in their daughter's higher education, it made them postpone their marriages, uh, right? So it had far-reaching uh, impacts. And there are many such examples. I've only given you one. But what that shows is a very simple behavioral insight, salience. You know, what you see is all there is. So if you see what, if you start to see women in positions of power, it normalizes. And it then means that that's the way it is. And it takes just two terms, right? So we're talking not years and centuries, but we're talking a period of which is relatively short to be able to change the way you behave. You're investing in your girl's education, you're postponing their marriage, because suddenly you see there's a future, right? Uh, and, you know, what, what that means is that even though your mindset may still have not changed dramatically, mindsets catch up with behavior, 
you're behaving or you're doing things which encourage women's empowerment ahead of, you know, actually shifting that mindset that follows, right? So it's counterintuitive in that sense. But let's bring, uh, you know, this back to a few more examples of financial inclusion. And, and let me give you now a couple of examples which go beyond India. And these are actually quite famous examples. Uh, Richard Taylor is a behavioral economist. He won the Nobel Prize in 2017. And, uh, you know, one of the things uh, that, that got him the award is the work he did using behavioral insights in financial well-being. Uh, so, and it goes by the name of Save More Tomorrow. And what that essentially is, is into the retirement plans, and this is in the US, in the, into the retirement plans, rather than people choosing to opt in, you're already in, right, by default. So what you're changing is simply what we call the choice architecture. You, you're changing the default. You're already in, and only if you don't want to do it, do you opt out. Right. So it shows something that we have a basic inertia to taking certain decisions. But if you're already opted in, you tend to continue. And it does something even more interesting. What it says is that as you earn more in future, the amount that you should put into retirement should go up. OK, now that is a very interesting behavioral insight. What we like is immediate gratification. Right. All of us do that. That's part of human nature. We don't like uh, losing what we already have, right? By saying save more tomorrow or you do it more when your you know, income goes up, a large number of people, and let me give you the actual statistics of how that actually changed behavior. So what it actually did is you had a percentage, which was 49% who'd opted for it. With this change, that number went up close to about 86%. Right. So you're using very clear behavioral insight, what we call the present bias. You're countering that loss aversion. You don't want to lose what you already have today. And you're using that and you're making a plan. And, and this is a person who won the Nobel because of that. So that's how and he coined the word SIF, SIFs. SIFs is supposedly irrelevant factors. It seems a very small irrelevant factor, right, that the default should matter. That just if you tell people that, you know, as you save more, as your income increases, more should go to retirement and you're signing that off now. That seems All of this seems rather innocuous and yet it makes a substantive difference. So that's where nudges and behavioral insights really come in. I'm going to give you one quick example, which is the other one, which is to me striking. And I use this in my workshops. This was in the UK in 2011. Uh, so to increase the number of people who paid taxes and on time, they sent out letters and three kinds of letters, right? One, one said that nine out of 10 people pay their taxes on time. Why don't you? The second said nine out of people in the UK pay their taxes on time. And the third says nine out of 10 people in the UK pay their taxes on time. You are currently in the very small minority of people who have not paid yet. No surprise that the third one generated the maximum amount of tax revenue of more than $3 million in less than a month. So that kind of highlights to you the power of nudges, right? And, uh, you know, we can both think the role that it can play in financial inclusion, right? Uh, the context differs, but we know what's working. You, we all tend to do what is easy to do. And we all tend to follow people like us. We don't want to be left out. There's a herding instinct or, you know, that's the reason I refer to conformity bias. This is where you're using conformity bias 
in the way it ought to be used, right? So, so th- those are examples for you. I find that so interesting, especially just when thinking about really little, quick things that can be done that make a massive impact, just wording th- something in the right way or, you know, giving someone a tool that just sets them up to make an easy decision. It's it's um, it's pretty interesting. And I think I remember seeing something to do with uh, minimum credit card um, amounts. And if people actually just, if the minimum gets changed slightly, people will just pay their credit card off faster because it's just without even realizing it, they're paying just a little bit more. And it might be a couple hundred, but that adds up quite quickly. And that actually makes it a lot easier to get through the debt. And it's, but you kind of need to position it in the right way so that customers don't feel like they are paying a lot more. And it's interesting, these nudges or these, the way of doing it so that it's, it's friendly for a consumer and it's not intimidating, but it just makes things a little bit easier for them. I I just find that so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I guess that that course you mentioned that you've run, um, what were some of the the key learnings do you think from from that course? And did you have any feedback on what what your students were finding particularly insightful or even anything surprising that they didn't expect? So you know uh, one of the things, and we had actually a, a, you know uh, classes which had both men and women, sometimes equal in number. Uh, and these are people who are opting for it, right? So some people, uh, you know, I, I remember a, a couple of girl students actually saying, you know, earlier when we would hear, um, so in India, one of the things which was happening, so you have what is called campus placement, right? So these are MBA students, and this was the most premier uh, MBA institution uh, in the country. So, you know, you would have companies, global companies, uh, both from India and from abroad, who would come into the uh, campus and recruit uh, before you know, the, the, the MBA program got over two or three months before that, so that, you know, when they are out of it, they, they go and, and, and join these companies. And some of them came with the mandate that they wanted to recruit only women, okay? Uh, because obviously they wanted a gender diverse employee base, and that was the reason. And what that then happened in the dynamic was obviously, you know, you will have boys who turn around and say, okay, so all you need to do is be a woman, all you need to do is wear a skirt, and you're recruited, right? Uh, So a couple of the girls who were in in, in my program uh, said that, you know, uh, one of the reasons why we opted to come into this course is because we would be filled with almost incoherent anger uh, when you hear something like this, because it's so obviously not true. And uh, so to, uh, at the end of the course, and I'm just relating this incident because it's quite funny, um, I, you know, this, I actually, we went through taking feedback on, you know, what happens? What do you feel now? So this student actually spoke about the fact that, you know, she said that, you know, this is what I used to be filled with, uh, you know, this not so coherent way of even expressing myself because it seems so obvious, you know, that, that they are, you know, saying something which is incorrect. But now... You know, I have a coherent set of reasons with which I can go back and counter them, uh, right? And so, so that's interesting because the moment you talk about the fact that not all of us are maligned against, in this instance, women or any marginalized, right? Uh, you behave in a certain way because that's what you see around you. So, you know, something which I never stop saying that women and men both have biases. I mean, I was a minority in a financial services sector way back in 89, but I accepted that because that's what I thought was the norm. I didn't think it was any different. I, I didn't stop to question why there are not many more women like me, right? So 
the the point is you know to not get you know upset and nor will things change if you shout from the rooftops the point is to change things by being smart and you know that's where as i said in a toolbox you have legislation you have incentives and you have behavioral nudges and the idea is and you will not always be right but the idea is a judicious mix of the three uh using science and using what has worked using best practices in this direction can actually move the needle and unfortunately you know while we do use legislation while we sometimes use incentives we never i mean or you know it's still not mainstreamed academia uses it development economics uses it policy makers in certain countries use it but unfortunately behavioral nudges have still not mainstreamed it's come a long way in the last decade but it's got a long way to go and you know really that's that's what what we sort of need to go forward and move forward and the 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 latter half of the course the first part of the course you know that that i taught was all about the fact that these biases exist where we didn't know it existed because much of it is subliminal right so it took people by surprise you had a lot of boys saying well i don't agree with it and you know you had a situation that you know, do you disagree with data because finally this is what it's all based on empirical evidence there are no leaps of faith here right it's decades of empirical evidence uh and in the last decade backed by neuroscience by a lot of research on on brains about how we decide what we decide to do and the latter part was actually if you can't rewire the brain how can you make design interventions and we spoke about a couple of them right which are very simple design interventions and there are many more in organizations in public policy that you can do to actually ensure that these behavioral biases don't come into play and that's pretty much what behavioral insights in a nutshell is all about it's about intelligent design using interventions that prevent these biases from coming into play and one of the key ones is cognitive diversity so in an organization you need to have a diverse set of people it comes sometimes from identity which is gender which is age which is a whole bunch of things and sometimes from occupational diversity right so that's that's how uh, uh, you know uh, one of the key ways in which uh, you could prevent biases from coming into play and basically prevent our judgment from being impaired so it's actually a win win you're trying to get the make the best decision that you should be making without the filter of your biases or noise coming into play yeah i can imagine there would have been some really interesting conversations in the classroom with some of the the research that you would have put forward um and before we wrap up today were there any final comments you had to do with financial inclusion and the role of you know behavioral insights and nudges to help make financial services uh, you know either more efficient or more effective or help aid inclusion Yeah so you know even today and I do work in this area you know I find a lot of uh, programs being run you know these are training programs which are run uh, on financial literacy and on digital literacy and you know and and these are funded by some of the largest uh, 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 funders in the world it happens in india it happens in developing countries and one of the things which i want to talk about is you know a lot of this needs to be informed by the latest research and that to me is a gap because on training and and that cuts across commercial organizations uh, policy makers uh, uh, you know uh, the non uh, the the non-profit world everywhere when you do training and and we do lots of training right training is is almost like a buzzword uh, when i spoke about uh, biases unconscious bias training is a big thing even in commercial organizations unfortunately 
you know, the latest evidence from neuroscience is whatever we learn, right, whatever is taught to us in a training program or in any form, we forget anywhere between 75% to 90% of it within six days to seven days. So within a week, we've forgotten bulk of what we've learned. So unless there is reinforcement or it ties into what we have learned in the past, now more often than not, you're training somebody to change something, right? So what we be believed in the past was something else. You're feeding me something else unless it is reinforced in different ways. So that's another insight which comes from the behavioral side and from neuroscience. Things are not going to change. So to me, it is way more important how you want conduct the training. So if you're talking about, say, financial inclusion and ease of using a mobile app, right, because you can do it, I will not do it. And it holds as much for you and me. It's nothing to do with the poorer sections or marginalized or women or anybody. We do what we are used to. And sometimes we will change only if it is easier for us. Somebody demonstrates and shows it to us that is far easier, right? I only did one or two areas where I did online payments, right? In the pandemic, everything I do personally is online. Earlier, it didn't matter to me. You know, somebody else went to the bank and did something and that was fine. Today, I do everything online because that's the only mode available. So sometimes it's a bit of circumstances, demonstrating what is really easy to us. And the third thing which I want to talk about is, you know, what goes today in the age of the internet by the word network effects or what, does, what do people like you, who you really trust and who you look up to do? right? And in, in the academic literature, we call them norm entrepreneurs. So if you want to change a norm, get the people who are the most influential to imbibe that behavior, which will then be followed by others, right? So if I go into a village and start behaving in a particular way, I'd be looked at as somebody who's alien and who come and behave like this and go and nothing will change. If you have somebody who comes from their setup, but who is like them, and yet somebody who is respected in that community, chances are that you would imbibe and follow that behavior because we are all social beings. And by social being, it's very contextually social. The people who are like us, right? So those are the lessons. And there are many ways in which, so in, in a very small way with, with, with the social enterprises and businesses that I consult with, those are some of the learnings uh, that I try to bring in. And that's really what intelligent design is all about, because ultimately all of us are trying to change behavior. Uh, but if there is a science which can hasten that behavior change, then, you know, that's that's pretty much what we ought to be doing. I think that's it's all so interesting. And I think so relevant across all industries, you know, even beyond financial services, like you said, with nonprofit or different organizations, it really just holds true for any new ideas, new products, new anything. It's really, really like that point. I think it's a great point to end on as well. And I think for our listeners who I'm sure really found that as interesting as I did, um, if they want to find out more about your work, where should they look? Okay, so Anna, you know, I've had a book and a website in the making for the almost the last couple of years. Uh, and uh, one of the things, you know, the, the, because the subject that I study is so interesting, what distracts me and takes me away is learning more and more of the cutting edge research. 
And it's also very interesting to put that to use. So that's what occupies me bulk of the time. But this is something which has been in the making and I hope that it becomes a reality uh, by the end of this year. Uh, where I'm available on is uh, LinkedIn. Even when I write articles for the mainstream press, I certainly post it there uh, and Medium. So these are the two areas where, uh, two spaces where you're more likely to Oh, fantastic. Thanks so much for your time today and for sharing all these um, amazing insights. I think there's going to be there's a lot we could talk about for a really long time, I imagine, but I really appreciate your time and thanks everyone for tuning in for this episode. Thank you so much, Anna. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Global Digital Banker Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify and Podbean. 